Welcome to the Gonzo Movie Reviews. The Pixar Specials. This is the Toy Story Trilogy Part 1. Continuing our series of in-depth analysis, geeky deconstruction, easter egg hunts, and stuff most people would never even think about, I've turned the Gonzo Spotlight onto a series which snuck in under our noses as one of the only perfect trilogies. Up there with The Lord of the Rings, Back to the Future, and Born, Toy Story stands as a towering cinematic achievement, a labour of love, and nearly two decades worth of painstakingly hard work from some of the most talented animators on the planet. The first ever entirely computer animated film and the inaugural movie for the world's only studio with a batting average of 100% after more than 10 movies. Joining me this week is a man you will know from his guest appearances on Digital Cowboys, but also, hopefully, his superb animated lectures on video game theory. One of the brightest and best people I've ever had the pleasure to meet, and also a man who's managed to get himself a job at Pixar itself on those merits, Daniel Floyd. Hey there. How you doing? I'm doing quite well. Happy to be here. It's good to be back. Now, in case you guys couldn't tell from my intro, I quite like and respect Toy Story, but we're going to spend the next hour or so explaining why. Did you see this in the theatre? I did, yes, when I was, I think, 11. Oh, I was, uh, this came out in uh, November, let me just double check, because I think it came out much later in England. I think it came out in November in America, but I think it was early 1996 in, in the UK. Oh, that's right. There was a delay. Yeah. In fact, uh, for quite some years, we got uh, we got our Pixar films delayed. In fact, I think we got The Incredibles two days before you, but that's the only one we've ever got before. Or, uh, but they managed to sort of close the gap a little bit over the years. But uh, just one other thing that we got late in England. But yeah, I think I'd have been about 16 or so. So that shows the gap of eight years between the two of us. I mean, you were Andy's age. Yeah, this, these, uh, this trilogy is basically almost perfectly geared toward my age group yeah uh uk 22nd of march oh wow (laughs) 22nd of march versus your november so uh yeah we we had to wait a while um at that stage i was actually sort of growing out of animated movies at that point or i was a now let me be more clear i was of the age group where i was supposed to be growing out of animated movies Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't go to see well no, I really wanted to go and see Aladdin I wanted to go and see The Lion King I wanted to go and see Beauty and the Beast but I don't think I managed to get to go and see a Disney film at the cinema from I mean since when I was a, a very small child I saw The Jungle Book and Bambi I think the first one I went to see on my own steam was Hercules if you don't count Toy Story which for some reason, possibly because of the technology involved in it, we'd managed to convince my father to take us to. <laughs> and at 16 years old, I was still completely bowled over. I mean, you'd imagine at that age, you're kind of Generation Xy and a little bit cynical. But uh, I absolutely loved it from the, the word go. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it's one of those rare films that, like the Shawshank Redemption, you don't actually meet people all that often who don't like it. It's very true. It it's really appeals to just about every generation I can think of. There's something there for everybody to enjoy. 
All right, so let's just go back a bit, because there were some short films made first. There were five short films made by Pixar and what they were before they were Pixar, before Toy Story came along, all available to view on YouTube and on the highly recommended Pixar Short Films Collection Volume 1, which houses the first 13 shorts. The five before Toy Story were The Adventures of Andre and Wally B in 1984. Let me just go back there. 1984. Like 11 years before Toy Story came out. I was born that year. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that, that was like a year after Return of the Jedi. And actually, it's, it's kind of linked in, because it was the Lucasfilm Computer Graphics Project that uh, I think they believed they had just created the, the Pixar, which was a computer which could create uh, fully CG graphics. And it's, it's a, a daft short film about a, a little guy who, who meets a bee and oh, all kinds of shenanigans happen in like a minute. But um, it's, it's really impressive for what they could have done in those days. And John Lasseter's aim was to get it done for uh, the, let me see if I can read this right, the 1986 SIGGRAPH, which is Special Interest Group on Graphics. Uh, does, is that still going today? I mean, do, do, do you guys in the office talk about that? Oh, SIGGRAPH is still is quite big actually now. It's a a big uh, gathering kind of. A, it's kind of almost like the GDC of uh, ah. visual effects and CG. And so technical yeah. folks and animators and people who are all sort of in the business but not really about marketing. Uh, definitely, yes. Cool. Okay, so yeah, back in 1984, um, John bought this along and. Uh, it looks kind of ropey by today's standards, but everyone was like, oh, my God, it's a whole world you've created with a computer. And it bowled people over. It definitely did. But people were would uh, go up and ask John, because, I mean, this wasn't the first time that uh, that uh, 3D had been attempted or that the, these people would have known and seen tests and other mm. little uh, shorts and stuff like that. What people would come up to and ask, uh, what software did you use? And and as if that was really what made it so special. They said, yeah. they said it was, it's so funny. What software did you use? And it was at that point that uh, Lasseter kind of realized that it's really not about the technology. It's just it's telling a story with the, with the, with the tools you have. That's, and, absolute, that's so telling for the future. I've got a whole swathe on that later. But the idea that if you could just crack into the right software, you can suddenly have a hit on your hands. Yes. Mm. Uh, then uh, 1986, now that they were called Pixar, to uh, to celebrate that particular fact, they created Luxo Jr., which is phenomenal. It's like a minute and a half long, and it looks like it could have been made yesterday. And this is what, a 15, 16-year-old film now? 15-year-old, uh, yeah. yeah. Just about, yeah. Uh, I mean, in case anyone's not seen it, a, 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 a big Luxo lamp looks at a small Luxo lamp playing with a ball. The small Luxo lamp crushes the ball and then looks really dejected and mopes off and then comes back with a much bigger ball. And the big Luxo lamp shakes his head and ugh. Uh, it's, it's, it manages to capture the parent and the child and the kids love it and the parents love it. And right there in Capture, you have why Pixar is so special. They made inanimate objects. Uh, what's the word? Anthropomorphized. But they gave them real character in tiny little details and just little creaks as it's moving. And you're thinking, I'm actually watching a lamp at this point. It's incredible how much character you can get out of that. Just ver- those very, very simple, quote unquote, characters. Mm. <laughs> it's just a just a simple little lamp and just little head tilts. Uh, just, uh, the way the 
the uh, little Luxo Jr. when he's all sad and dejected, just kind of like shrinks down and the, and uh, and the little headlamp facing the floor. You just feel oh. And the extension cord bouncing along behind him, as though it has to actually apply to the physics. Just they applied the physics to the existing characters and made it seem like you were actually watching something real, and and, and they made you engage that much more with it. I'm still amazed that they could do that because i mean i'm not surprised i wouldn't be surprised seeing that sort of effect now i would just mm. like uh you see something like that in toy story 3 it's like well of course they can they can do that but back then i'm just it's you have to understand if this was like trying would be like trying to tie your shoes after having like topical anesthetic all over your hands or something this mm. is they know how to animate they know how the the i mean lassiter knows how the principles works but just the technology he had to work with and the tools he had to work with then were just so primitive and early on that it's really incredible they were able to get to achieve what they did all the more so for Toy Story. I'm trying to remember what kind of what what does CGI even look like at that point. I mean, okay, right. Uh, this one you might know about. Uh, what was the movie that inspired Lasseter to go? Yeah, you know what? I could probably work in the first CG. One entered, no, are we talking like early on, like his first intro? Like, uh, are we talking Tron it, here? It was yeah, Tron, 1982, okay. before you were born. Uh, yeah, Tron. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Tron. There was a sequel, um, yeah. but Flew yeah, on the that, radar a little bit. <laughs> No, it was plastered all over every goddamn wall. Uh, no, but uh, no, Tron is was huge for sort of my generation, maybe a smidgen before. Um, and, you know, sort of everyone, it's like being inside an arcade. But uh, I think John had a job. I'm going to call him John at this point because I feel pally with him, even though I should call him Mr. Lassiter. So then they made Red's Dream. And, uh, yeah, like I said, I still can't imagine anything that was of that caliber. Uh, I'm thinking back to, like, the first sort of movie with a heavy CGI influence was The Lawnmower Man. They were going, oh, these incredible graphics that look <laughs> awful. Really, really awful by today's standards. <laughs> it's like you're inside a computer. Um, I, I, again, kind of similar to Tron in that respect. Only, uh, yeah, Lawnmower Man actually just straightforward sucked. Um, but yeah, Red's Dream is about uh, a unicycle that gets, you know, get, gets his clown upset with him for, by hogging the spotlight. And my daughter was crying for it the other day. We were just sort of watching all the shorts. And he's just, again, like uh, Luxo Jr., his head's down, his seat's down. He's all dejected. He's bouncing his head against the wall. He's a deeply depressed unicycle. And those are three words I never thought I'd say <laughs> in conjunction with one another. Again, masterful. And that's probably one of the ones that people, uh, unless they've been paying attention, might not have seen. So check that one out, Red's Dream on YouTube. Tin Toy uh, was uh, shown later before Toy Story 2, was it? Oh, balls, hang on. I know, I think it was, I think it was Luxo Jr. was before Toy Story 2. No, hang on, yeah, Tin Toy came with the original Toy Story when that was released on DVD. Kind of the birthplace of Toy Story, this one. It was, uh, it's, it's about a little, uh, uh, one-man band named Tinny, which kind of comes back with one-man band later on, just before Cars. Um, who has to endure a particularly aggressive baby. And, Again, the baby looks kind of scary by today's standards. I mean, I suppose he was supposed to be. He's supposed to be terrifying to a toy of that size. <laughs> and then he meets yeah. the other scared toys underneath the uh, the sofa. And um, oh yeah, I'm describing the plot for Tin Toy here. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> Again, it, it manages to, 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 to evoke huge amounts of emotion in this ostensibly entirely CGI round-headed tin thing with, uh, with just a little mouth and some eyes and his body language. And when the baby finally picks him up and chucks him down, he's going... 
and shivering with fright. You're like, oh my god, he looks so fragile. That baby could really mess him up. Uh, and he ends up playing with a bag again. It, it's you know, getting the parents, getting the kids, everybody. It's just unanimous things everybody can get with. Red streams slightly less. That one, really, people who've only ever been severely depressed can actually get. But Tin Toy, everyone can get with. Yeah, it's basically the early kind of a drop in the water that leads to yeah. that leads to Toy Story down the road. Originally, they were going to expand it into a Tin Toy at Christmas, which was going to be a TV special for the Disney Channel, uh, and that eventually became Toy Story when they sort of workshopped it into something you know of a far more a far-reaching plot, and Tinny became Buzz Lightyear. Yep. Uh, and then there was just before Toy, just before six years before Toy Story, there was Knickknack, which is the uh, the snowman who wants to get to a souvenir of a woman and I, I don't know, kiss her. It's it's never made entirely entirely clear what the snowman wants to do. But uh, in the the original version, she has big boobs. In the later version, she does not have big boobs. Doesn't really matter either way. But I think that the less big boobs one probably is a bit less disconcerting. <laughs> But yeah, it's, 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 that's got the energy of a Tex Avery cartoon in, in that he, the snowman tries various different ways to get through his snow globe to get to the girl on the other side, who is just so alluring. Again, it, it's, it's got this sort of energy to it, and it's got a straightforward plot that everyone can get with, and the, the, the I suppose the adults can get with the lust side of things, and the kids can get with the fact that it's, it's a fun snowman. I don't know, it's uh, another great, uh, great little short, and it was on, it was before Finding Nemo, when they uh, re-released it. Yeah, I, I think that might be my favourite of the uh, early Pixar short. So I just, I know it's just all kind of gag-based humour, but I, I can't help it, it's it's. It's got a head-slapping ending, which you're like, ah, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think my favourite of all of them is probably still Luxo Jr., simply because it's so simple and, and because of what it accomplished. I absolutely love that one. Right, yeah, so after Knick-Knack, uh, then they were, you know, went into talks with Disney and said, "Look, we can actually do a full CG film." And it took them what five, six years to actually finally produce Toy Story and to actually harness the technology. But the difference between Knick Knack and Toy Story is astronomical. It is. It's. I feel like there's sort of like a missing link between these in a way. It's. I am. You look at them side by side, and it is incredible how much of a leap forward Toy Story is, even from their own earlier work. Mm. I mean, all of the earlier ones are entirely silent and, and would appeal to all cultures and all uh, age groups. Uh, Toy Story is far more uh, engaged and character-based, and it's, it's a huge, straightforward film with various interlinking threads of plot. And it's difficult to say, you know, how much you know, effort's gone into this. I mean, and just a little side note, uh, in the books on Andy's shelf, you can see the names of all five of these uh, Pixar shorts, usually with the author being entitled a name for, of a Pixar staff member. Oh, and Andre from Andre and Wally B was named after Andre in My Dinner with Andre, the co-star of which was played by Wallace Shawn, who plays Rex in Toy Story. Oh, it's all coming together. Indeed. Circle of life. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, in 1990, Pixar met with Disney to discuss the possibility of a TV special named A Tin Toy Christmas. And by 1991, they'd signed a three-picture deal and started working on Toy Story. I don't know what the other two pictures in that deal were. I'd imagine that'd be, what, Bugs Life? Bugs Life and... Because um, they weren't expecting a Toy Story 2 at that point. But, yeah, they may, not have, they may not have specified what they were at that point. They oh, yeah, yeah, even, yeah. 
even right. known what the third would be, but uh, I guess the third one would have been not Toy Story 2 because that wasn't planned. Was we finding stuff. Nemo? I think I seem to remember Monster Inc. Monster Inc. Monster Inc. Okay, uh, I seem to remember a, a, a meeting that took place between them, and they it was in the extras of Wall-E, and they were talking about their like they had five films planned out at a certain point, and those films had not been done yet. And one of them was Toy Story, one of them was Bugs Life, one of them was Monster Inc., one of them was Finding Nemo, the other one was Wall-E. So they had that one in the works for a long time. Yeah. Uh, we'll do Wally at a later date, but my God, what a film. Okay. <laughs> uh, for Toy Story in production, Tinny the Tin Toy was made into a space figure. Uh, any idea on the name of this space figure, Dan? Plum uh, for uh, your depths of knowledge on this one. <laughs> oh, what did he start out as? He had like three different names at one point. Uh, I've got two of them. Tempest from something. Was Tempest his, was from the Morph. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one was Luna Larry. Oh, that's right, Lunar Larry. And uh, it says that he was named Buzz Lightyear, named after Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon. Uh, yep. The movie was originally planned to represent... Okay, this is yeah, open to debate, but the movie was originally planned to represent how new Hollywood was taking over old Hollywood. The original casting choices were Paul Newman for Woody, who ended up being in Cars, representing old Hollywood, and Jim Carrey for Buzz Lightyear, representing new Hollywood, who has not to date been in a Pixar film, but probably should. Have you seen A Christmas Carol, by the way? Uh, the new one, I haven't, no. It's really good. Now... I didn't, I didn't. Almost nothing, almost nothing could replace the Muppets for me. But uh, <laughs> that's my favorite too. Jim Carrey's performance uh, in that, and the little, the detail on his face, and just the little. I mean, have you seen Beowulf? I haven't seen that either. My oh, God, you call yourself an actor? <laughs> they're on my to-do list. Look, there's, I, I have mixed feelings about the uh, the competition. Know. Well, not so much the competition, because I mean, I'll I'll openly admit there are a lot of like DreamWorks films that I love. That's but. Uh, it's more it's more the uh, style of kind of recreating trying to recreate perfect uh photorealist of yeah. realistic human actors when it it seems like you really could just use human actors in a CG environment or something like that it just in, seems kind of like interestingly uh, enough your is. your lecture on the uncanny valley popped into my head the second i started watching uh christmas carol because while pixar give you a nice big i suppose stylized toy uh, which if they can then inflect with little tiny details image movers give you a human being with lines all over their face and your brain's going that's real no it's not that's real no it's not <laughs> for most of the movie and uh it, it's it's a conflict which you know i'd imagine that's why pixar don't want to have to spend huge amounts of time convincing people that what they're seeing is real it's true i mean there's a lot of appeal you can get out of a stylized representation of a, of a character i mean mm. the incredibles are about as stylized as they come but there's just so much raw appeal in those character designs and uh, i don't know if you've seen tangled yet i have not yet i that is on my list of definitely it is it is quite excellent and those the characters in there might be some of the most appealing cg human characters i've ever seen woody was originally uh, i'm assuming you've seen all the uh, the the uh, storyboards for this he was originally quite a scary looking ventriloquist doll and a lot more jaded yes originally the size difference between woody and buzz was going to be pretty enormous. A buzz mm. was going to be kind of a much smaller... An kind of action a little, figure. Yeah, yeah. Like, a GI, little, like a newer generation G.I. Joe, tiny mm. little uh, action figure, and Buzz was going to be... Uh, and Woody was going to be a much larger uh, ventriloquist dummy. And so that Buzz was about the size of Woody's head. Mm. And uh, which, thankfully, they eventually changed. Probably made their lives a lot easier, too, was trying to frame and film the, those two characters 
Yeah, I don't even get why they were trying to make him a ventriloquist doll in the first place. That's not a toy. I mean, he, he can't actually give Buzz any advice on what it is to be a toy. Effectively, he's more of an entertainment device used to, it, yeah. Yeah, I think it comes from an earlier draft back when uh, Buzz was a tin toy, and uh, the tin toy was going to like maybe meet uh, this ventriloquist dummy. He gets lost or something. It's the whole yeah, pizza yeah. planet uh, being lost thing, and he meets the dummy, and the dummy's like, ah, kid, you come with me. Yeah, you know, These exactly. people, they can't offer you anything. And ugh. It, it yeah. sounds like it would not have... Well, I don't even know where Pixar would be today if that had been the actual film they put out. Yeah, it's, it def- the movie definitely went through a lot of radical changes. I th- think there's this, there's this great uh, Ed Catmull quote that I'm trying to remember, and I can't remember it exactly the way it is, but uh, he still says it today, that like every... Film, its first viewing, every every great film's first viewing, it starts out sucking. Mm. It's every great film you've seen today. It first it started out sucking, but you you work you work on it a little bit longer, and eventually it doesn't suck as much. <laughs> and then you just keep on working on it, just keep on iterating, keep on getting critiques, keep on iterating. Eventually, it actually becomes pretty good. And then if you just keep on going, eventually you're going to get something great. Maybe that's why a lot of uh, animated films suck. They never go through those stages. They don't have the high standards it requires. They just go, eh, it'll do, and chuck them out. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to the point that Pixar spends at least half of the time, that, at least half of the time that a film is being worked on in some form is before any production is happening. They're, the story the story process for these films is usually at least two years long. That's a really long time to just be storyboarding, working with uh, voices, and just refining the films yeah before before even before even any before it goes into the computer at all so just getting the head and the heart right before you even start on the hands yeah you you make sure that the entire film is working because i mean the working on story and storyboarding and the writing that's relatively inexpensive too i mean you don't want to start entering as really expensive cg production stuff before you've even got everything hammered out because that's a great way to lose a lot of money and work yourself into a into a corner so they basically have the entire movie working before they get started. So they, which, isn't say thing, which, which isn't to say things don't change still, because I mean it's still kind of an organic process. But they're keen on getting a full storyboarded version or an animatic version of the movie beforehand, then, right? So it's it's a case of like this is what it's going to look like. Yeah, yeah. It's much it's much less expensive in the long run, and it really uh, helps you to it helps you to know exactly where you're going and what you're going to need. One of the initial tests for Woody featured the character expressing dialogue from which Tom Hanks movie? This is before Tom Hanks was cast. Turner and Hooch. Oh, well done. Thank you. Yeah, it's the bit where he's going, don't eat the car! And it, they've actually done that a lot more in... in, in uh, I remember they, they cast Dennis Leary and Kevin Spacey because they used footage from the ref with their uh, characters in A Bug's Life. Oh, yeah, that's right. The Joel Cohen you read about in the credits on writing duties is not the other half of Ethan, the world-famous movie writing, directing, and producing siblings. It's the other Joel Cohen of Cheaper Brother Dozen, Evan Almighty, and Daddy Day Camp. Now, I spent, until today, I thought it was that Joel Cohen. Had to do some digging. However, there can only be one Joss Whedon, and that is indeed his name on the writing credits, too. Yep. It was Joss Whedon's idea to incorporate Barbie as a character who would rescue Woody and Buzz in the film's final act. Barbie was going to be Woody's love interest. It turned out to be Bob Peep in the end. The original ending sequence in which Buzz and Woody chased the moving truck was scripted to have Barbie drive her Corvette off the truck and rescue Woody and Buzz from Sid's dog, a la Sarah Connor. The idea was dropped after Mattel objected and refused to license the toy. Producer Ralph Guggenheim claimed that Mattel did not allow the use of the toy as they, Mattel, 
philosophically felt girls who play with Barbie dolls are projecting their personalities onto the doll. If you give the doll a voice and animate it, you're creating a persona for it that might not be every girl's dream and desire. Barbies did, however, appear in the film sequels Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. Hasbro likewise refused to license G.I. Joe, but did license Mr. Potato Head. The film's related toys were produced by Thinkway Toys, who secured the worldwide master toy license in 1995, and very smart they were too. I find the Mattel thing somewhat objectionable. If they'd just been honest and said, look, Barbie's not Sarah Connor, rethink it, then I'd have been fine with that. But it just seems like they were saying, oh, no, no, because little girls want to pretend that they're, you know, and then ending up doing God knows how many Barbie cartoons, like a year after that. Yeah. Uh, it just seems somewhat disingenuous. But th- I'm not here to hit on Mattel. I understand. They probably thought at the beginning, what is this thing? Barbie is Sarah Connor. This film's not going to go anywhere. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> if they'd known how huge it was going to be and how wonderful it was going to be, they'd, they'd most definitely have said, yes, have Barbie. And we got a few riders. <laughs> and thank goodness they turned around, too, because it led to oh, some yeah. of the great moments in Toy Story 3. Yeah, I love those bits with Barbie. Uh, and also... Without Barbie, you can't have Ken. Probably the best new character in Toy Story 3. <laughs> okay. If you have the Toy Story Blu-ray, you, or indeed the DVD, you may already be familiar with the extra known as... Is it Black Friday or Black Monday? I haven't... It is Black... It's Black Sunday. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it was black. It's pretty darn black. This is the original screening of the first run version with dialogue that was a horrible mess. Jeffrey Katzenberg had been passing Pixar notes time and again to make it edgier, and as a result was Woody being a sarcastic jerk that nobody could relate to. The production was shut down and underwent huge rewrites until it was the script we know and love. It's never made entirely clear exactly how much involvement Joss Whedon had with the finished script, or if he's more culpable for the rejected script than has been stated, because it's possible he could have been, he could have written everything that was rejected. But Pixar and Whedon seem professionally tactful about the process, but tellingly and sadly, Joss has not to date been invited back, which I think is a huge shame. Yeah, and I I don't actually know what happens in the background here either, but uh, I don't suspect that uh, it really was like all Whedon's contributions or anything that caused the trouble. I think a lot of the problem was uh, Katzenberg did want uh, he did want Edge in the in this uh, film. Darker, really, edgier, punchier. Yeah. Give it uh, attitude. What he what he eventually kind of was probably I assume kind of worked into the Shrek series, which worked quite well in Shrek One, honestly. But uh, I think a lot of the problem was that Disney was passing down a lot of uh, notes for thing changes for them to make, and Pixar was and the guys were taking all of them and uh, incorporating them. Mm. But then eventually it did just kind of. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, what was the what was the quote uh, from Schneider said that uh, when Katzenberg asked uh, why the film wasn't working, he's, uh, Schneider said, "Well, it's not their film anymore. Yeah, it's it's a very it's turned into a very different movie than the one that they set out to make." So compromise sounds like the yeah, word so, that would be much yeah, appropriate. So, the, so yeah, production was kind of shut down or on hold, and uh, the guy and uh, everybody at Pixar ran back and started reworking it as quickly as they could to uh, try to get things back on back on track. And fortunately, they did. Yeah, because if you look at it as written, Woody is pretty dislikable to begin with. And uh, there's, I mean, you can see where he's coming from, but he's still a jerk about things, even in the final version. But they add enough for you to see it from his point of view and for you to realize, oh, hey, this guy's just come along. And he doesn't even know why he's pushing Woody off the top of the podium at this point. Yeah, there's a fine line between kind of a, a uh, jerk who is still kind of 
kind of appealing who you can kind of get on board with and just an unwatchable jerk. And I yeah. think that was kind of the line that was crossed in that uh, very unfortunate early reel. Yeah. I mean, the best way that they uh, they characterize him is that he cares so much about Andy and he cares about the other toys. He's cantankerous at times. And, you know, he's like, plus is positive, minus is negative. But he, he doesn't want anybody left behind. He doesn't want any toys to suffer. And it, it's obvious when you watch him for a while that he... He's just upset about the whole buzz thing, and and he's he's terrified of growing old and and, and unloved, and it's it's something that pretty much everyone can relate to once you get past a certain age. Yeah, I think when the, the, every kid knows what it's like to actually have one of their best friends suddenly start going around with someone else, so that's easy to relate to for kids. And for kid, for adults, it's it's there's more sort of complicated relationship situations where you just feel like you're no longer as important to somebody as you could have been. And that's deeply explored in the next one. I'm impressed by the themes that this trilogy does explore because they're pretty uncommon for a kid's film. Like, oh, hell yeah. I mean, you, one, you, you could go so far as to say that they're all about mortality in some way, but even if you pull it back in just a, in a milder form, it's all about non-permanence. Mm. Uh, each, each film is, is about, like, things are great now, but what if Andy finds somebody yeah. else and, I, and forgets about me? What happens when Andy is going to grow up? And the third one, all right, well, he's grown up. What happens now? It's just like this is going to end someday. And just yeah. every every film is driven by that fear that this is going to end someday. And just kind of the clinging to it, clinging to his current situation. There's almost no other films, animated ones, which I can think of that aren't Pixar, that have that kind of sense of seeing the future as this mysterious, danger-filled gray mass. And this, this, this sense of, in the end, in, in Toy Story 2, it's okay. Well, let's talk. You know what? We'll talk about that in Toy Story 2. All right. Because there, there is a lot to talk about there, but we've got to focus on this first one, which is possibly less ripe for deconstruction than the next two, simply because it's 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 very clean as a, as a film. It's very uh, straightforward. It's, it's got some you know great emotions. And, and because you haven't spent huge amounts of time with the characters, they have to have wear everything on their sleeve. So it's you're not going, ah, oh, right, he's doing this because of this. It's, you know, they, they set up some straightforward storylines and some characteristics, and you go, right, I, I'm, I'm with this straight, straight away. It starts off, they, they hate each other, and with, and with good reason. I mean, Buzz, Buzz doesn't hate Woody, and I think to, to a degree that pisses Woody off more than anything else. And in the end, it takes them actually having a fight just to work it out of them. So, so that, you know, in the end, it turns out Buzz is somewhat challenged by Woody, and... and and, and Woody gets to clonk Buzz upside the head and make it squeak. You know, then suddenly they've got this shared sense of, uh, of, of dread that they could be abandoned. And, you know, in Buzz's delusional world that he will not be able to fulfill his mission. But, you know, ultimately it's, it's, they, they unify as a result of that. And, and it leads to all kinds of good things later. Definitely. I think, I think that is part of what drives Woody so mad about it is that Buzz doesn't even care about this. Yeah. It's the thing that is so important to Woody that he just clings to so much and that's so important to him has been taken from him by somebody who doesn't even realize what's going on or care. Yeah. It's just, that's maddening. Toy Story was completed on a $30 million budget and a $20 million advertising budget using a staff of 110 in comparison to The Lion King, released in 1994, a year beforehand, requiring a budget of $45 million and a staff of 800. And even that was Disney's B-team, since at the time they were pulling all their hopes into the un- upcoming romantic epic Pogantus. Which I really like, but didn't in any way get the universal adulation of The Lion King. Oh, no. No. 
Toy Story went on to gross 361,958,736 dollars. It's a very precise figure. It really is. 12 times its initial budget and 7 times its budget if you include advertising. It's also Pixar's lowest grossing movie to date. Astonishing to say, but adults worldwide had not cottoned on to the fact that this was a studio you could trust to deliver family films for all the family, not just slapstick for the kids and the occasional over-the-head wink at the parents. Over the past 16 years, however, the world learned its lessons soon enough, and 2010's Toy Story 3 made over a billion dollars, and deservedly so. Toy Story boasts a 100% freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes. 74 reviews, every one of them fresh as a daisy. This is the first animated film in Oscar history to be nominated for a Best Screenplay Academy Award, adapted or original. The film was selected into the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant in 2005, its first year of eligibility. So they've got to be around for 10 years. So it was just sitting there waiting. It was like, come on, Toy Story. Okay. And they only just brought in Back to the Future, and that's been around for God knows how long. Really? Just yeah. recently? Wow. God, what about two and three? Okay. They're quite picky over what goes in there. Music. Disney were pushing for a musical, but many of the creators, including Lasseter and Whedon, stated that in a buddy movie, nobody says what they really feel, so they definitely aren't going to be bursting into song about it. This is kind of ironic, considering that Joss Whedon went on to do once more with feeling, and then Dr. Horrible's sing-along <laughs> blog... A halfway house was reached when Randy Newman penned three songs that expressed the inner thoughts of the toys without having to have them sing. Uh, you Got a Friend in Me starts off being Woody and Andy's song but ends up Woody and Buzz. Uh, hence the Lyle Lovett uh, turning up and for the uh, duet at the end so that you got like a two male voices on that. Uh, Strange Things is Woody's reaction to having the rug pulled out from under him and I Will Go Sailing is Buzz's revelation that he's not the heroic space ranger he thought he was. Now this turns up in quite a lot of Pixar movies. I mean, Cars has a very literal song in it. Uh, Toy Story 2 has a very literal song in it. Uh, Wall-E has a very literal end credits. It's it's, it's sort of a, a a theme they keep riffing on. Yeah, that's the way to use the uh, musical, <laughs> a nice musical touch without having to actually have the characters break into song, mm. which I appreciate. This movie really was radically different than any other animated... I mean, aside from just the 2D to 3D change, it would mm. be uh, no villain... No. Yep. I mean, you could call Sid a villain, but he, uh, he, kind of is. he kind of is a villain. Yeah, but uh, Scud's kind of a villain. Yeah. Okay. He's kind of a villain. I, I'm gonna put it like this: no villain who knows what he's dealing with. True. Yeah. It's it's, it's it, they 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 represent a threat to the toys, but they don't know why. Yeah, and I mean, and you have to admit that uh, while Sid is uh, made to look horrifying to from the toys' perspective. Mm. Truth be told, he's probably a more accurate representation of what most of us growing up were like yeah. with with our toys. Oh, uh, see, so no no villain, obviously. It's interesting uh, no you say musical. no villain because a lot of the Pixar films, the villains aren't straightforward villainous. They're usually embittered people or people who have who've had a, a miserable life or seem to have made themselves miserable because of the outlook that they've chosen on life. Uh, yeah, up, uh, Monsters Inc. Uh, cars, uh, Ratatouille, uh, Wally, uh, Bugs Life, yeah. <laughs> uh, Toy Story I mean, 2, yeah, in fact, all of them. Toy Story 3, and it's a recurring thing, every single one of them. Incredibles. Yeah, I guess it's, it's the difference between a villain and an antagonist. I mean, the, uh, mm. 
there has never been a, that, I, that I can think of a Pixar film that has kind of the uh, mustache twirling, mm. the, the Jafar, the Scar, the... Yeah, I love like, the way your foul little mind works, that yeah, kind of... Or the, the Palpatine, like, evil and loving it, just like a straight-out evil <laughs> Yeah, no, they, they deal with unfortunate individuals who present a threat to the, uh, the heroes. Did I say up? Up, yeah. Definitely yeah. an up, Christopher Plummer in that. Uh, you know, started out as a hero, and as Harvey Dent says, lived long enough to be- see himself become the villain. There are so many ways of interpreting Toy Story. Many of them revolve around Buzz's delusion. Some have seen it as a metaphor for the covertly fabricated moon landings, with Buzz Aldrin Lightyear absolutely convinced that he was an astronaut hero. I think that's bollocks. Yeah, I think that's a stretch. <laughs> Others see it more like Don Quixote, with Buzz choosing a divergent reality over the more mundane and meaningless existence everybody else faces. It becomes more complicated as a metaphor when you take Woody to be initially the people who scoff at Quixote for his foolishness, but at the point when Buzz loses hope, he becomes Sancho, trying his absolute best to bring Buzz back to the position of hero, whether he's a space ranger or a toy. Unlike the real Quixote, however, Buzz does snap out of his melancholia to reclaim his ranger persona, readjusting it to the limitations of his toy physiology and position in the world. But it's not the ability to fight aliens, shoot lasers or fly that makes him a hero. It's the moment of self-sacrifice when he's stuck in the fence and urges Woody to carry on and leave him behind. He still retains his heroism as a Mm. character. He just kind of like he decreases the scale a little bit of the things he's heroic about. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's much more... um, he uses his abilities for, to help people rather than just to look cool. Which, I mean, a lot of the whole Space Ranger shtick appears to be uh, about being overly prepared for every... Like, like way too prepared for every situation. <laughs> I've sent my laser from stun to kill. Some points that I've noticed over the years. Andy's father. That's a big one. I'd like to know what happened to Andy's father. Andy and his mother's sunny demeanor do not suggest a recent separation or divorce or worse, a death. If Andy was reeling from conflict or loss, then that would reflect in his play. So my conclusion would be that he never knew his father and has learned to live happily in a one-parent family, a hallmark of the 90s. But then there's Molly. Clearly not yet three, according to Potato Head, and only just learning to walk in Toy Story 2, said at least six months after the original. So if Andy's father hasn't been around for many years then Molly must be a half-sister from an absentee father. Not something Disney likes to think about, but I'm certain someone at Pixar knows the answer to where Andy's dad is. Can you find out? I have <laughs> looked a little bit, but uh, I think um, there was an interview with uh, Lee Unkrich after the... Uh, the Director of Toy, Toy Story 3. Yeah, after uh, Toy Story 3, where people were asking about it, because th- this has bothered people. <laughs> but um, including my wife, who's driven crazy by this uh, this plot, or this kind of not really a plot hole, but this... Uh, it's not... It just seems to be sort of, you know, uh, just written out in a kind of... Uh, no, no, Dad. But in in a kind of way where it's like, don't think about it too much. Yeah. I think... And I think uh, his explanation, if I remember, was uh, they've left it intentionally vague. They've... They're not... I'm not even sure they've decided exactly what the uh, history there is themselves, but he... Like, one of his own personal uh, favorite kind of points to think about is... Consider that Woody is Andy's favorite toy, and Woody is from a generation way older than Andy. Oh yeah, from Woody the might be could very easily be a hand me down. Because mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of it would be kind of odd for somebody Andy's age and Andy's generation to have for like Woody to be his favorite toy, and not just a hand me down. He's in pristine order as well. He's been kept very well for. Let's see, if Andy was born in the uh, the late eighties, then that's what. 
30 years of, of being kept relatively perfect. It's not even like he had a gun to begin with and that went missing. He's, he's, Mint, he's effectively a mint loose figure. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of an unanswered question. Like one, a point that's not necessarily that's not important to the film at all, but it is mm. something that uh, it's just kind of very open. She likes to, to think about stuff too much, which is what I do. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about Woody's condition later, but uh, in in Toy Story two. But yeah, it is it's it's remarkable almost. It's almost like. Uh, Hmm, I suppose we could talk about it in two, but Woody's complete obliviousness to his actual identity indicate that he maybe spent a long time in storage. I hadn't thought about that. That would make some sense. On the commentary, John, Pete, Andrew, and company all talk about Andy and Sid and the way that they play with their toys. Curiously, in their eyes, Andy is the weird kid, playing with imagination and adoring his toys in a deeply personal level, which is probably why Woody loves them so much. But Sid is the one who tortures them for fun, blows them up, and makes hideous creations from their dismembered parts. John and company admit that that was what they did with their G.I. Joes and other toys. In their estimation, Sid grew up and became an animator. Yeah, I think that that is probably a fairly accurate thing. I think... uh I think they joke a little bit that John himself is maybe a little bit more on the Andy side, kind of the nurturing toy. Uh, yeah, no, I say John. Yeah, John's more. But, uh, he had a Casper, which is what uh, Woody was based on. I love this one uh, story that um, Andrew Stanton tells of his kid, where he, uh, the way, the uh, day he knew that his kid had arrived, when uh, he'd look, what they were having. Oh uh, yes, yes. And he looked, he looked out the, uh, he looked out the window, and he saw a GI Joe like strapped. Like uncomfortably to a tree branch or something, and it's and uh, it kind of looked down over to his son and said, like, "Son, did you put the GI Joe out there on the on the tree?" And his kid just kind of like just kind of like looked up from his bowl, and simply said, "Boot camp." And boot camp. And went back to eating. Oh yeah, makes perfect sense. <laughs> that does seem that sort of thing that normal kids do with their their toys. I mean, I think Sid takes it. They're, they're kind of they're the two opposite ends of the spectrum, and I think most kids sort of meet in the middle. They they love their toys, but they also mess with their toys sometimes. Yeah, you know, just just because I pulled the legs off my skeleton doesn't mean I wasn't really really sad about it afterwards. <laughs> I had to have this torso skeleton attacking He Man all the time, <laughs> which is scary if you consider he's a skull. Definitely, yeah, it's true. It's, but I mean, these films are all about seeing things from the toys' perspective. I, I think this movie helped a lot of us to kind of like totally to understand toys a little bit more. Yeah, in a way. And it's fascinating about Sid because I'd never looked at him in that way. Uh, while neglected and possibly mistreated, he's hardened into a crazed, aggressive, and socially inept kid. And he's also massively creative and bursting with energy. All he would have needed was an inspirational mentor type to harness that zeal for creative mayhem into something constructive. Instead, he ends up as a cameo garbage collector in Toy Story 3. Now, he may also be a podcaster on the side, and he certainly seems quite happy listening to metal, but there is so much more that Sid could have done with his life. He seems happy, though. Yeah, like I said, he's listening to metal. He's like, oh, yeah, boom. But um, maybe maybe when you go home, he's created uh, sculpture creations out of scrap metal like uh, Dean and the Iron Giant. That could be. Um, I think he might be a little put off toys after his experience in the first film, though. Oh, Yes! That might have actually Shit. been his turning point. He might have been an animator. <laughs> if not for the... Woody messed him up good. <laughs> nice one, Woodster. Okay. Like most of you guys out there, I had a pack of these green toy soldiers. The ways that Pixar evokes that memory are subtle but masterful. There are messy bits of plastic on their bodies from where they were punched out of a single molded sheet 
And like every toy soldier, their gun barrels are infuriatingly bent. To get the walking effect, the Pixar animators glued sneakers to a plank and then filmed themselves walking around on this bizarre ghetto snowboard contraption. The sergeant is voiced, by, of course, by R. Lee Ermey, turning in a family-friendly rendition of Gunnery Sergeant Hartman from Stan Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. He did the same thing in the pilot for Space Above and Beyond, The Simpsons, Family Guy, Invader Zim, Starship Troopers, Scrubs, and The Frighteners. And we love him for it. <laughs> if you do one thing really, really well, we'll always cheer you when you come on and do it. The best kind of typecast. Yeah. Actually, speaking of typecast, John Ratzenberger. Ham is played by John Ratzenberger, who has appeared in every Pixar film. Ah, okay, right. <clears throat> Quiz for Dan. Who did he play in... Well, obviously he reprised the role of Ham in Toy Stories 2 and 3. Who was he in A Bug's Life? In A Bug's Life, he was the uh, PT Flea. Yep. Uh, who was he in Monsters, Inc.? Monsters, Inc., he was uh, the Abominable Snowman. Finding Nemo? Uh, a school of some kind of fish. Yep. Uh, the Incredibles? The Underminer. Which was a riff on the Mole Man in Fantastic Four. <laughs> nothing is beneath me. Uh, Cars? Uh, he was Red, I believe. Wait, hold on. Mac. It's not Red, it's Mac. Yes. <laughs> Mac the truck in Cars. Obviously, he was a Mac truck. Uh, and its upcoming sequel, he will be reprising the role of Mac. Uh, who was he in Ratatouille? Oh, that's a good one. Hang on. Uh, I might be stumped on this one. Is he someone in the kitchen? No. Yeah, kind of. He's the maitre d', Mustafa. Really? Yeah. Wow. He, he has a sort of French perform- accent. It's, it's, it, you'd have to be listening. That was a great performance from him, because I never picked that up. Uh, who was he in Wally? In Wally, he was the, um, I think it, is the guy's name John? He's one of the uh, inhabitants yeah. of the Axiom. Yeah. Yep. And in Up? In Up, he is the... Uh, the uh, guy working on the construction team. Very good. Ten for ten. Uh, he's somewhere between a badge of honor and a lucky rabbit's foot for Pixar, and I don't want to think about the day when his dry humor isn't heard in their movies. That's oh, going to be rough. Out among the stars I sail Way beyond the moon In my silver ship I sail A dream that ended too soon now I know exactly who I am and what I'm here for. And I will go sailing no more. All the things I thought I'd all the brave things I've done Vanish like a snowflake With the rising of the sun Nevermore to sail my ship When no man is gone And I will go sailing no more. But no, it can't be true. I could fly if I wanted to. 
In every Pixar film, the Pizza Planet truck turns up, along with a bunch of other mainstays. In this film, it's obviously front and centre, but it's managed to work its way into every other movie, even the unlikely ones like Finding Nemo and Ratatouille. More on those in a later show. Dynaco, the gas station that they park under, is who in what movie? It's later the uh, sponsor in Cars. Well done. And uh, what does Buzz bounce on to uh, fall with style? A Luxo ball. Indeed. One of the, uh, the balls from Luxo. <laughs> that turns up all over the place. In yeah, you'll see that all the time. It's, it's even the, it's the circus ring in um, Red's Dream. Oh, is it? That's... Yep. That's, it's pretty, I mean, pretty much everything they've ever done since Luxo Jr. has had some reference to Luxo Jr. in it in some way. Just a little thing, but at the end of Strange Things, when everybody's asleep, Slinky's paw is twitching like a real dreaming dog. I saw that. It's so cute. Look closely at Mr. Spell's screen. He sometimes says amusing things in text form to express his thoughts. I just saw my wife and I spotted some of those for the first time yesterday and watching it again. That, yeah. Like when he, like when they poke their head out of the uh, closet door, you'll just see question marks question across mark, the yeah. screen. And, uh, <laughs> when Mrs. Potato Head gets announced at the very end, he says hubba hubba on his screen. <laughs> That's right. Uh, speaking of uh, Mrs., Mr. Potato Head is the worst battleship player of all time. If you look at his pieces, he's arranged them all in one chunk, and all Ham has to do is just keep arranging... Uh, you know, if Ham gets one hit there, all he has to do is just hit anywhere else around there, and he's going to keep scoring hit after hit. And Potato Head's uh, just got miss after miss after miss in everywhere except the areas where Ham's ships are kept. It's remarkably poor playing of the of the game. Yeah. The Claw. One of the things everybody remembers is the green three-eyed alien zealots and their claw god. This is both incredibly funny and, if you think about it, kind of makes a weird sort of sense. If everybody looks the same, nobody has a name or an identity. The only being with the power, it appears, of independent thought is the claw. And it's natural to assume that if your existence is some sort of limbo, then escape and being apparently chosen by your god can only be a blessing. It's also the only completely unrealistic part of the movie, not because of the talking toys, that I buy, but by the creator's own admission on the commentary that it is the most tenacious vending machine claw in the world. As anybody who's ever thrown a pound into one of these, I suppose it would be a dollar for you guys? Yeah. Uh, Into one of these two-button bandits will tell you, here's the sequence of events. One, you walk past and think, gee, what a lame pile of rubbishy toys. Two, Ooh, Buzz Lightyear. That might just be an official and not some dodgy knockoff. Three, have my money machine. Four, press button to move claw up. Five, press button to move claw right. 
Six, claw goes down and touches the Buzz Lightyear lightly on the forehead, limply closing at the same time. Seven, claw comes back up again, empty. Eight, you swear and move on. The arcade is now one pound richer. Not only does the claw grip Buzz's helmet with a vice-like strength, but it yanks him clear into the air and even manages to match and exceed Woody's insistent tugging, even bringing him along for the ride. This is surely a work of the wildest science fiction imaginable. Throw the Matrix out. Here is your dream world, people. But at the same time, it moves the story along, and we're fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> we can believe that maybe Pizza Planet hated those aliens, and they were just trying to get rid of them, so they made the claw much stronger. Made it industrial strength. The match. For the explosive action set-piece finale, something that Pixar have now made a standard for all of their films. Oh, do you know which animated film this was inspired by, by the way? I do not. Uh, it was a 1993 short film from Britain, Claymation... I still don't know. Wallace and Gromit in The Wrong Trousers. Oh, I haven't seen that one. You haven't? Oh, my God. I I know. I've I've got a lot of catching up to do. It's... uh, Okay, right. I will just... Okay, at the very end, um, Gromit's charging along on a train, and he gets near the end of the track, so he grabs a pack of track, and then as the train's whizzing along, he's laying down track in front of it. It's it's just... It's... (laughs) Lightning fast and so funny. And he even manages to weave in and out of table legs as he's going by finding bendy bits. Oh, God, those, those Nick Park movies are fantastic. Oh, sorry, Ard Man. It's a full group process. Okay, so it's a standard for all the Pixar films. And you get a fantastic fake-out in Toy Story in the form of the match in Woody's holster. Everyone paying attention would have concluded that this was going to be the big day saver at the end. It gets blown out and leaves you completely flummoxed. This is a fantastic moment in Pixar movies. They do it often. Lead you in one direction, even subtly so, and then yank the rug out, leaving you unsure of what the hell's going to happen next and what you would do in that situation. Then you get the magnifying glass gag that they implanted a long while before the match, and it all makes sense. This is one of those moments of detail that puts them eons ahead of their competitors. However, one thing always bothered me was that in launching the rocket, they left RC's remote control behind. Yes, they saved the car, but without it, he's not even as good as a regular toy car of the same size, lacking the details and movable parts to even freewheel. However, at the beginning of Toy Story 2, Andy uses the control to launch Buzz at the evil Dr. Polk shop. My only conclusion is that Mrs. Davis, who is Andy's mum, got on the phone to Tyco at the moment Andy unpacked and found the remote was gone and ordered him a replacement. This made me feel better because I hate to think of toys like Wheezy losing their raison d'etre and getting shelved and yard sailed. I've lost too many toys in the past for that not to sting. Ah, yeah. It kind of occurred to me the first time watching it uh, again yesterday that uh, when uh, after Woody kind of kicks Arcee out of the truck and tries to bring Buzz back, and they're all uh, struggling to get back on the car, uh, back onto the moving truck, and the uh, batteries run out of RC. That it's, it feels like an apology to RC is in order mm. because they have just doomed him to their same fate until they figure out the whole. Yeah. <laughs> until they figure out a way to catch back up, <laughs> but uh, they don't really seem to address him at all. I'm fairly surprised RC didn't shake them off and kick their asses, <laughs> especially since it would he used RC to create the whole farce in the first place by knocking Buzz out the window. So it's, I guess it's a kind of wholeness to him using RC to redeem the situation. It's a very good support. Mm. It's so sad that RC's not still around in uh, Toy Story 3. I can only hope that he was sold in a yard sale, still in mint condition, since uh, Andy seems to keep his toys like that and gave some kid many hours of fun play. 
it's so sad, could be applied to many, many, many things in Toy Story 3. Yeah. More on that in two weeks' time. The Influence. This was an absolute milestone in animation. It cannot be underestimated how important and influential Toy Story was and remains. Most of the other animation companies have now eschewed 2D altogether, chasing the incredible cocktail that Pixar seems consistently able to mix, seemingly growing more flavorful and inspiring every year. So few succeed chasing the shiny graphics and ending up with people who behave like spasmodic rubber dolls with disco dancing old people and mafia animals that are entirely out of place in a family feature and a general lack of texture and detail everybody spends their time screaming or referencing other movies and every viewing is both exhausting and boring whatever film you're thinking of I mean that one (laughs) one of the key elements is heart and not shoehorning in emotion like that one excellent but out of place bit in the, with the cave paintings in Ice Age but a pervasive character driven rich story that makes you care about them at every step so that when they get hurt it wrenches your heart out a series of party poppers for 80 minutes with a picture of a sad puppy at the 65 minute mark does not win hearts and minds they still put in audiences of course with sequels being churned out for even moderate successes and new disco dancing granny animals with mafia leanings waiting in the wings but it's not the gold mine it once appeared I lamented the year of 2006 when we saw a new CGI animal picture every week yet slowly but surely with Pixar leading the way the standards are being pushed DreamWorks who after the excellent first Shrek installment produced a torrent of effluent have finally started producing films like Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon which actually rival Pixar for both quality, well-channeled energy, and heart. I would agree. Definitely. I, I think that's actually, I want to note there, that's actually, uh, for all the great things that have come since Toy Story and the great things that have happened because of it, the death or sort of the crippling of 2D animation in, a, in this country is mm. one of the saddest things as that, fallout. I've ever, that, I, as fallout that I've ever seen happen. And everyone at Pixar felt the same way when they were seeing, like, Disney 2D animation department just being cut out completely. It was just because I mean we grew up with those movies. Yeah, I mean, they're still some of my favorite films, and just just kills you knowing that it's like that 2D just kind of fell apart in this country for a while because everyone was chasing the kind of it's, the 3D. It's going to take a, a huge effort for it to actually bring itself back. It's going to take Disney to really get behind that. Have you seen The Princess and the Frog? I did, and I like it a lot more than other people seem to be. Seem it's to. my second favorite Disney after The Lion King. I right, really love that film. Uh, it's um, No, what I mean is it's going to take more films like that, and films that will actually... And it, and that people liked it, but it didn't captivate them, not like Pixar does. And I think it should have done because it's it, there's so much there in that film. It's it's my it's my ironically my favorite animated 2D film, Lion King. Second favorite, Princess and the Frog. My daughter, exactly the same. She's two and a half. And it's it's not like, uh, you know, I'm just like, hey, uh, do you want to see The Lion King again? I'd say, what do you want to watch? Simba, Woody, Buzz, Tiana. That's all she ever asks for. <laughs> it's exhausting. But um, but so worth it. But, you know, seriously, Disney has is her bread and butter these days. Woody? Uh-huh. What does he say? Not 
some strange things are happening to me. Did you ever see Home on the Range? I didn't see that one. Neither did I. They, that was one it's, when you watch it, it was used as a sort of, look, 2D doesn't work anymore. Uh, it just seems so cynically motivated, if that was the thing, because it, it's, it's awful. It's really rubbish as a film. It's about cows and everything that implies. Um, but it was still <laughs> better than, what was that one with the cows? Uh, Barnyard? That's the one. <laughs> yeah, used it as if to say, look... 2D can't cut it in a world anymore. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, I hate a chicken little as well. So it, it doesn't matter if it's 2D or 3D animation. It's, it just comes down to what's being, you know, put behind the animation. Yeah, the truth is, and Roy Disney put it this way himself: the world would have jumped for a great 2D film. Hmm. The world would, have, if a great 2D form were put in front of them, they would have gone for it, and it would have, and it would have been big. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, it was just a really unfortunate thing where. Where as great as it was that Pixar came out and just every single one of their movies was great, it's just really an unfortunate time when uh, a few when uh, Disney's 2D films were underperforming slightly and just uh, you look at those two and you compare the two and it was uh, very easy for people to jump to conclusions. So it's a it's a shame it turned out the way it did. But after 
Princess and the Frog and uh, the announcement of the new 2D Winnie the Pooh film coming out. I'm actually I'm hopeful that this is the start of an upward trend, and as, including Tangled in there as well. Even though it's 3D, it's we've seen a big up turn in Disney's turnout lately, and I just as an old Disney fan am so excited seeing that happen. But yeah, Toy Story has had just an incredible impact. It's basically started an entire sub-medium of animation. Mm. And, uh, I mean, it's as well as it's had, like, and I mean, in my case, it's had a very profound impact on my life because uh, it's kind of gone on to define my life in a way. I was very, ex- I was inspired and very excited seeing it as a kid. It, the films have been aimed toward my age group, it seems, all, just the entire way, all the way through Toy Story 3. And now it has defined what I do. It's my career. It, I work I work at that place now. So it's this movie has a very special place for me. I am so hugely jealous. <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned it uh, before, but I am. I really, really am. I wish I could get you a job out here. I know. Hard. If they need a podcaster, I am your man. If they need a podcaster, you're the first guy I'll be recommending. Thank you. I wish I could say the other studios, step back, let them play. Nobody else is allowed to make these bad CG movies until you learn to do them well. But it's the seemingly effortless ability to remain on top and the fact that they're raising the standards every year that makes it okay for them to be a bright dot in a sea of multicolored disco gangster marsupials. And bear in mind, this was going to be a flop. Nobody thought it was going to do well. Now, 16 years later, and every studio on the planet would give their left lug nut to be producing a film as universally adored by critics and audiences alike, as flocked to as a flapping fish on a seagull-packed dock, as influential on the industry that it itself was about to transform, as far-reaching into the next two decades with sequel potential and merchandising opportunities that rival Star Wars and Harry Potter, not to mention inspirational to thousands of young animators, writers, and other creators, and millions of children hungry for new ways to play with their toys. I mean, I don't want to just make the prediction, but I feel like this is a set of films that will be watched for a very long time, mm. multiple generations. This is going to be like many of the old classic Disney treasured ones. This is one that kids are going to be raised on for a long, long time. Mm. And it's and it, which is why it's so great that it still visually holds up. I mean, I may look at be able to look at it now and see. Uh, it's like well, that's like oh, the oh, there's troubles there in the animation and the rendering and the lighting work. Aren't, certainly aren't what they are today, but it's even me with my really hypercritical eye for that now. I still get distracted and lost in the story and the movie itself and the characters. It's, and if it's enough to, and if the story and the characters are enough to make even me and my fellow animators stop caring and stop being hypercritical of every tiny little thing and just get lost in it, that's that's success. Would it be fair to say that it's the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves of our generation? Absolutely. I think Definitely so. Doesn't, I mean, there's not, no, not many other movies I can really compare it to. Not, so few that broke through the boundaries like that. I mean, there's films that tested the boundaries. If you remember, wasn't it Basil the Great Mouse Detective had something similar to Deep Canvas or uh, 3D animation inside the, the workings of the clock tower? In fact, it, it, they, that was a good, yeah, that was a good uh, early exploration into trying to infuse mm. some 3D stuff in there, which. John had actually been trying to get them to do a lot earlier, but uh, it kind of cost him his job. Cost? Whoa! Yeah, it's uh, it was kind of a story. Like um, he, John started out uh, working at Disney. He actually was an animator on Fox and the Hound, and uh, he was set up to be um, to to be directing a film, uh, the Brave Little Toaster. 
after seeing Tron, he was really excited about uh, the potential for infusing just for like 3D environments and th- the kind of thing you see in Beauty and the Beast now with the special those particular sequences. And uh, he was working on it and he was pitched it and it did not land. Well, with the uh, with the kind of the Disney brass, and he found himself pretty much uh, just let go. And fortunately, uh, Ed Catmull was there, very excited to be able to get a legit Disney animator on staff. <laughs> and and uh, then Pixar started. Was that just after or during the Fox and Hound? Isn't that the one that Don Bluth stormed off and said, I'm going to make my own company? Is that the one he did? I think so. I think Don, that was definitely the last Don Bluth Disney film. Oh, wow. But uh, I'm not so sure. rather I, troubled I think it was, production. I think it might have <laughs> to been. To lose yeah, Don Bluth, but also John Lasseter in the same. <laughs> yeah, it, I think it was a really hard time. I think it was a kind of a rough patch for Disney. The, the Disney animation has had kind of a, if you look at their history, it's kind of a series of like kind of like triumphant years mm. and then kind of some rough kind of splotchy areas or areas where films weren't coming out at all. And uh, this, this was just unfortunately one of those little one of those little eras where things weren't going quite as well, and just a lot of uh, the high-quality stuff was just kind of being budgeted out of the films a bit. I have a list. It's color-coordinated. That was wow. the third generation. I was raised a Disney fan, so that's exactly the sort of thing I love. And by the way, to anybody out there, if you ever have the opportunity to take an animation history class, that's the coolest, most fun history class you will ever have. You're just watching cartoons. It's such an – there's so much cool, fun – stuff back there that you've never seen before. I bet you get uh, respect from the old people in your town as well. Oh, watching cartoons all day. You keep up that education, son. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> we can't possibly can t- we can't cram in everything about Toy Story into this one show, but uh, when we come back for next week for Toy Story 2, there will be some serious deconstruction of everything that's about because like I said this one's a very clean fairly simple straightforward film with some high emotion going on but the next one's where you can start really digging and, and we'll also have some production issues talk on the uh, on in the next episode because that was a well we'll get there it, in the early stages of Pixar's uh, production run, from the sounds of it, Bugs Life wasn't quite as troubled as the uh, the, the, first, the Toy Stories. But the first two Toy Stories, seemingly, that they were a labor of love, but the labor was the important bit. Yeah, and Toy Story 2 in particular was both a re- like possibly one of the hardest times that studio had with the feature, but also turned out being one of the most defining kind of periods for the studio as well. So it's... It's pretty good. We'll talk about it later. Indeed. I cannot wait. I could almost do it now. But uh, no, we'll have to wait. We will see you again next week. Daniel, please plug your animated lectures. Oh, yeah. Um, I do a series of little shows on The Escapist called uh, Extra Credits with uh, my friend James Portnow and uh, newest little team member Allison Theus. And uh, you can find us there every Thursday at noon um, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we just talk about... Uh, Video games, video game design, just kind of industry stuff, but it takes to push games forward. Just lots of very nerdy stuff, but we try to make it entertaining. Okay, so me and Dan will be back next week with Toy Story 2. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Daniel Floyd. And I've been trying to work out a way to sign off. Uh, we'll be back with more Child's Playthings next week. Nice. Nice. You are sad, strange little man. <laughs> Actually, that works. We are sad, strange little man, and we'll see you next week. You've got a friend in me. I like it. <laughs> You've got a friend in me.
won't be You just remember what your past said Boy, you got a friend in me Yeah, you got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got trouble And I got them too There isn't anything we wouldn't do for you We stick together, see it through Cause you've got a friend in me you got a friend in me Some other folks might be a little bit smarter than I am Big and stronger too Maybe, but none of them will ever love you the way I do It's me and you, boy And as the years go by A friendship will never die You're gonna see it's our destiny You got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got a friend in me, you got a friend in me.